Welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and it's great to have you join us here today. Thank you for all the compliments regarding the podcast. I really appreciate them. We're not a sponsored podcast, so your rating and review is our payment because ratings and reviews matter in the rankings of the show because they help other people find the podcast. And I also genuinely love to hear what's been helpful for you. If you'd like to leave us a review, just search Grow My Salon Business on the Apple Podcast app. And to leave a review, you just scroll to the bottom of the page and write a review. It really is as simple as that. So on with today's show. For some people, hairdressing is just a job. For others, it becomes a reflection of who they are and an avenue to channel their creativity, their personality and their passion. In other words, it's not just a job. It's a way of life. And as a client, when you meet someone like that, you know that they bring something special with them. And as a hairdresser, when you meet someone like that, it reminds you why you started in this industry in the first place. My guest on today's podcast is many times awarded hairdresser and salon owner, Paul Stafford from Stafford Hair in Belfast, Northern Ireland. You're going to go a long way to find someone more open, more honest and passionate about his journey and the lessons that he's learned along the way. In today's podcast, we'll discuss how where you grow up influences your beauty aesthetic, the meaning of style, dealing with bankruptcy, the importance of salons, and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Paul. Uh, good morning. Thank you, Anthony. It's a pleasure to be here. It's Great. I've been chasing you for a while to get you on the podcast, and I'm really, really <laughs> excited about having this opportunity to talk to the most stylish man in the industry. So uh, and I, don't say that, I don't say that lightly, <laughs> um, but we'll come back to that later on. Uh, listen, I want to just jump straight in here, Paul, and I want you to sort of start off by telling us, how did you get into this uh, amazing hairdressing industry? What was your journey you know, into it? You know, I, I've been asked this question before, and there there is an answer to it that is very, um, it's very typical of anybody who's into hairdressing. But I, I think the, the thing that strikes me about the point where I thought this could be something that I could do was many, many years before I actually got into the industry. Uh, my mother was someone who, um, she wasn't she wasn't somebody who was particularly image orientated she she liked to wear nice things and she 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 didn't often have her hair done but every now and again this would have been the mid 70s in the during the troubles in belfast uh, she would take herself off into a top salon uh, in belfast and she would go and have her hair done now as you can imagine belfast in the 70s was bleak i mean there was regular bombings. The, 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 the streets were desolate. There were soldiers everywhere. So we were. I was. I remember being dragged through these grey streets in the bitter Belfast rain to be taken to this salon where she would go and have her hair done. Maybe once every six months, not often. Mm. And um, and when I got into the salon with her, it was suddenly turned into Technicolor. The grey of the outside had just disappeared and there were these people who were bubbling around the salon there was noise you could hear the hairdryers and everybody looked glamorous everybody looked really uh happy actually and I remember my mum just sort of you know being pampered and enjoying the experience and then she'd get her hair done and someone would come along and they would ask me that I want a drink it might have just been an orange juice or a biscuit or something and everything just looked otherworldly and um and then she'd have her hair done and, you know, she'd pay and she'd take herself off out into the grey again. And it was kind of like that little that little kind of desert of, of, of happiness and joy and glamour had disappeared like that. And that was my first memory of thinking, I think I might like to do a job like that. You know, and also the clothes. Everybody was wearing these clothes that I'd never seen anybody else wearing. 
I mean, this would have been around the time of glam rock or the disco type period. So, you know, it was very over the top 70s, 70s um, clothes, but, uh, and music. There would have been music playing that I wouldn't have been hearing at home. At home, I used to hear a lot of country and Western and rock and roll. And in the, and in the salon, it was definitely that kind of David Bowie, disco, glam, early, maybe the early kind of murmurs of punk as well. And um, yeah, it had a massive effect on on my life. I never thought about it until about a year ago when my mum died. And I I remembered that that was the trigger point where I thought, God, I, I really, I, there was something incredibly exciting about that space and that environment that I, I thought, yeah, this might be somewhere I'd like to hang out. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I wanted to work there, but I certainly wanted to hang out there. So maybe that was the point where I, I really thought this could be a career, uh, but in the early in, in the early eighties, my mum and dad moved from Belfast to the south of Ireland, and uh, it was really very difficult for me. I, I found it hard to settle in after a couple of years in in school and um, not particularly doing very well. Uh, during one summer, I bleached my hair. I think I was really kind of inspired by Sting and Quadrophenia, and uh, when I went back to school, they expelled me, and. Um, my, I, I, I went back to the salon where I'd had my hair bleached and I said, I need to get this fixed um, because if I don't get it fixed, they're going to they're kick me out of school completely. And they said, all oh, right, well, we're looking for Saturday boys. Do you fancy coming and working here on a Saturday and we'll do your hair for free? And I thought that was a really good deal. I'll get my hair fixed and I'll also get it done for free. So um, I started that Saturday and it was exactly that same feeling as I just explained when my mum took me to the salon it was that feeling all over again I just I felt that excitement I loved the buzz I loved the people I liked the glamour of it I liked the kind of exhibitionist the exhibitionist aspect of it too and I knew I was home I knew that for me was going to be where I was going that was that was where I was going to be spending the rest of my life and it didn't occur to me that I might not be very good I never thought, I never thought, <laughs> I never thought I need to be good at this. I just thought I'm just going to hang out here. and I'll find something to do here for the rest of my life. And I've been there ever since. Okay. That is such a, uh, such a beautiful image. It's, it's almost like the beginning of a musical, of a stage show. I can just <laughs> sort of see it now, like this black and white. As you just said, you were dragged through the streets of a bleak, you know, Belfast you know, raining and grey, and into a salon, the doors open, there's lights, there's music, there's colour, there's a whole other energy. I mean, it's such a beautiful uh, association and, and a transformation. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people, if they're lucky, would, would be able to uh, relate to that. Um, the, you know, there's a real richness in, in all of that, which I, which I really want to dig into. Um, yeah. There is a, you just mentioned quadrophenia. Uh, you mentioned sting for people who, who mm. don't know about quadrophenia. Well, well let, let me come back to that, actually. Um, you did an incredible hairdressing show. Um, I don't know how long ago it was. Was it two or three years ago, the one that you filmed? Yeah, it was 2018. Right, so okay. Three well, years ago. It's, it's for anyone who, who hasn't seen this. If you go on YouTube and you just put in the search engine, uh, uh, This Modern Life, and uh, there is a, a show which, which Paul and his team have put on. And I'll put the link to it in the show notes, but I really, really want you to look at this video because you will learn so much about the man and the influences on him in this, uh, this short video. It's 15, 20 minutes long. It has lots of great sort of social and cultural and music references in there. And um, yeah, I, I encourage you to go to it. So, so let's, let's talk about that for a minute because it's not just a 15 minute movie. You get the feeling that it is sort of the culmination of um, your life as a hairdresser up to that point. Like a lot of things are in there, you know, that have, have obviously been, um, you know, happening to you, evolving over the years. You've already touched on the troubles, etc. Um, so, 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 tell us about tell us about that movie. Tell us about the background behind it and how it came about. 
Well, well, first of all, I've always written. I've always uh, written stories. I've always been a writer. So I, you know, I've I've put down little fractions of my life uh, here and there across the last thirty years, and I tell the stories when I do seminars and do shows around the world. And of course, the, a lot of them are based on the fact that uh, I grew up at one of the most exciting periods in youth culture. The late seventies, early eighties were just phenomenal. For anybody who doesn't uh, understand youth culture from a British perspective, it was just the coming together of these great teenage tribes that we all escaped to because we had nothing else. I mean, the UK and Ireland were in various different. Um, periods of recession, depression. In Ireland, you had the troubles, and you know the the outlet of um, being part of a of a tribe, whether it was a punk or a skinhead or a teddy boy or a rockabilly, was just it was it was nailing your colours to the to to the post. And I felt for me, it was the most eclectic time in my life because, in a, from a hairdressing perspective, I was able to really use my hairdressing. Um, as a way of, uh, as an outlet to sort of touch on to these various subcultures. To cut a long story short, because it is a very long story, uh, Alpha Parf came to me in, in 2018 and they said, we want to put a show on in Dublin in the RDS, two or 3,000 people. And we want to we wrap it around the culture of the mod movement. The mod movement was, was, it was a very... London-centric movement that had started in the mid to late 50s where kids had started to stop dressing like their parents and had stepped away from the teddy boy movement, which had predated it, and it started to take on a, a combination of European style, very Italian, very kind of French, that Riviera, brighter clothes, neat fitting, very sharp, very sophisticated very aspirational, and the American kind of Ivy League, which was very preppy. So that's where it started. It, 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 it had gathered a lot of momentum through the late 50s to the early 60s, where by 1962, 63, mods were going down to Clacton and Brighton and beating up rockers and having fights on the beach. That's what people remember it for. In the, in the late 70s, a guy called Frank Rodham had directed a film based on the Who's very iconic um, pop... Um, uh, uh, what's the, what's the word? It was it was like a very famous album called Quadrophenia, which was like a a, a rock opera, and mm. he made the film Quadrophenia, which started, which starred Sting and and Toy Wilcox, Phil Daniels, lots of others, and um, and Ray Winston, and it became kind of the the touchstone for the the mod revival. So in the nineteen late nineteen seventies, for for me, when I seen that film. It was the stepping away from the kind of punk new wave movement to be part of something that was, you know, kind of fresh and energetic. But it was very sharp, very kind of very sophisticated. Being a mod was like the absolute snobbery of youth culture because it was elitist. It was sexist. It was everything you wouldn't want, you know, to be today. But at the time, it was the absolute. There's a great thing in the mod movement, which was kind of like, if you know, you know. And it was about being ahead of the pack, being super sussed. But of course, I wasn't a great mod. I was never a mod, really, because, first of all, I didn't have any money. Um, I wasn't particularly handsome and I wasn't particularly clued in, but I observed it all. As a kid, I could I watched these great kids transform themselves into peacocks and these wonderfully, you know, the attention to detail was phenomenal. The design, the ever-changing looks so when we did this modern life, I said to the Alpha Park, everything that's been said about this has been said. I can't, I can't do put on a sh- We're not just going to send kids down the, down the catwalk on scooters. It's all been done. But I had taken the stories that I'd written over the years, and I decided that I would make this story about my, my observation of the movement and what it meant to the people who I knew growing up. But this modern life is not just about, you know, looking up to these people and, and, and sort of admiring them. It's also about uh, the inequality of the times, about how elitist it was and about the people who, you know, probably felt that they weren't being included in the various subcultures, that their lives were completely um, different from 
the people who they had around them. So it and it, it uh, the the story itself is actually based around one individual who I remember growing up who was quite obviously transsexual, transgender, and all these very kind of strong subculture groups had completely turned their backs on this particular individual who was the most different of us all, who was the bravest of us all, who was the most outrageous, who was the most, um, you know, the most visually attractive of us all. And yet, because this particular person didn't fit the, the stereotypical views of what outrage or what being a teenage rebel looked like, was completely ostracized from, um, from, from the community. And the story is about that person. It's not actually about the mod movement as such, though it, it interlinks in the sense of wanting to be part of something and then coming to the realisation that you don't have to be part of it, anything at all. Okay, so the, the little boy in the, in the movie, does yeah. he represent you growing up? Yes, funnily enough, my brother contacted me and said to me, oh, is, 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 am, I the, am I the kid? And I said, no, you're not. And he said, well, I thought I was the kid and you were the kind of cool mod. And I said, no, 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 no. I was never a cool mod. I'm the kid looking up to these cool kids because right, okay. I've always seen myself as, um, as an outsider, as an observer, as someone who I'm like the voyeur of subcultures because I, I, I would never claim to be, um, I was never cool. I've never been a cool person, but I'm a great, I'm a, I'm, I'm a great uh, observer of people. There are elements of the film that are very much based on my life. The, the, the scene where the soldiers are running down the alleyway and they, they, they acknowledge him or the kid is something that was very vivid in my mind because I had actually gone, I, I, I had gone on the, the beat from school that day. I, I couldn't go back to school. I just, and I'd gone and hidden in a, it, it, well, actually, I hadn't hidden in an alleyway, but we used the alleyway as a, as a much more, as a, as a better um, uh, sense of space. But I remember being caught by soldiers while I was mitching from school. So that scene is very much mm. part of my childhood. A lot Amazing. of the scenes, a lot of the scenes are very, all the people are based on real people. Right. Okay. The, the, the thing I... I often, you know, are fascinated by. I mean, I was born in New Zealand. I've lived in Australia for 15 years uh, at one point. Uh, I've lived most of my life in the UK, and I do a lot of work in the US. And um, one of the things that always fascinates me is how in the UK, um, and no more so probably than Northern Ireland, um, you really get to see how fashion, how trends, how... Um, just a, just a way of life is so different to what people might experience in other English-speaking countries, United States, New Zealand, Australia, whatever. And suppose what, what, I'm trying to, what I'm trying to get to is how beauty and fashion and politics uh, and music and, in your case, growing up in, in the Troubles with soldiers on the street and, and bombings going off and all this sort of stuff, how, in a funny sort of way, it actually influences fashion. It influences yeah. your perspective on 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 beauty. And you know, I'm I'm going to put links to your um, Instagram on the in the the podcast. We'll sort of promote it at the end, and I'll put it in on the website, etc. Uh, but I suppose what I'm saying is, your work is really really strong, and it, it you know you've dropped a lot of. Uh, you know, words like mods and, and talking about the who and quadrophenia and, and sting and all this, all these great cultural sort of references. So mm. it's not really a question, but talk to how all of that has influenced or influences the work that you do. And I, I know that standing behind the chair with Mrs. Brown on a Thursday morning is not going to, you know, be that person. But in terms of the collections you do, the shows that you do and stuff, talk to it from that perspective. It's actually very, very simple. I mean, back in the 1980s, before I actually learned how to cut hair properly, um, the kids that I were doing coming into my kitchen were had flat tops, feather cuts, skinheads, crew cuts, um, we didn't call them mullets, but, but, you know, they had that Ziggy Stardust type look. So those were the haircuts that I'd grown up 
doing because that's what I was interested in. It was much later before I, I started to explore the craft. And I was very fortunate, like you were, to work with someone who'd come from Sassoon, who actually looked at what I did and said, you know, you have a great imagination, but you have no technique, um, mm. which I refute now. I actually don't think that was true. I think I had great technique. It mm. just wasn't classical. And I mm. don't think, you know, I don't think being a classical hairdresser is either essential nor necessary nor vital anymore. I think you can be whatever you want and you should be. But I'm glad mm. that I, I was taught the classic um, um, principles because it's given my work a, a better foundation. But I still go back to that because street culture to me is everything that I, I mean, I love street culture from the 1800s, the 1920s, the 50s. I, it's not just a 60s, 70s thing. I love I love the fact that kids and, and youth rebel against every generation before it. It's as it should be. When You know, when I... You know, when I walk through through the streets of Belfast, I want to see, um, recently I've been walking through and I've seen kids who now dress up in that very vintage style. They're starting to dress like, you know, they're they're from the Great Gatsby. And I love it. It's, it's rock and roll. It's punk. It's the way yeah. it should be. Um, for me, um, style and fashion are, are vital to what I do. And that constant curiosity of exploring what's going on, where, 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 this, where this comes from. By the time we see it on the street, it's probably like the mod thing. It's probably already been around for three or four years. So I want to I want to see it before it gets to the point where it becomes, you know, it becomes a mass mass enjoyed. But uh, it's just something that fascinates me. It fascinates me in books and music. I I'm always digging out kind of you know reference points and 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 writing and and music that kind of shows that 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 this new generation is pushing ahead the problem is that with the internet today and instagram and facebook i wonder how much of it is truly authentic because back in the 70s and 80s in order to be clued in you had to be very curious you had to actually research you had to actually physically ask people questions, which was a complete no-no. I mean, you go up to some kid in, in the middle of Belfast and say, by the way, do you mind if I ask you where you got your trousers? They'd probably slap you. <laughs> but that but but in order for you to be in order for you to be yeah. kind of as cool as they were, you had to ask those questions. And yeah. for me, that constant curiosity is I mean, my father gave me uh, Jack Kerouac on the road as a book when I was um, I think 15 or 16. Mm. And that for me was a turning point. You know, that great exploration, that great sense that you could go out and take on the world and, you know, have your own language, look the way you wanted to look, feel the way you wanted to feel. And remember, not be concerned with judgment. And that's the mm. thing I think I still feel today. I am I'm Teflon. People can say what they like about me. It does not affect me at all. You know, mm. if, if I put a post on, for me, putting a picture up on Instagram of me wearing something, just, it's just like the 1980s and, you know, going parading around Belfast City Centre with nowhere to go, but I've had, a, I've bought myself a new um, ankle-length coat. It's, it's a, the exhibitionism and, and the freedom of it is my defiant fist in the air saying, I'm going to be me. Okay. I, I, I'm so glad everything you just rattled off there. And I didn't ask you a question before. It was just a sort of a, an open the door to something. And I, I suppose it's because at, at the very beginning of this, I introduced you and I said the most stylish man in hairdressing. And I sincerely mean that. Uh, and when I, when I say it, it's, I'm, I'm sort of trying to understand it myself. Uh, and anyone who goes to your Instagram account will see you and they will see the way you dress and what you look like. And I suppose this is what I'm trying to get to. It's not a job. It's a way of life for you. It's a passion. And you just use that word authentic, you know. It's who you are. And, you know, you mentioned Salon International before. I was at Salon International too. And, and there was, you know, look, you see some great-looking people there. But you also see a lot of people who represent our industry. And you look at them and you think, if a client walked in the door and sat down in their chair, why would they take any notice of what you had to say? 
about style, about fashion, about how to make the most of themselves. And I think that's a real shame, you know, that, that there are mm. people in our industry like that. And I suppose that's inevitable in any industry. And I'm, I'm hardly, you know, the, the, the queen of style myself. Um, but <laughs> you, you really, you know, I, I follow you on Instagram. And the pictures you post of yourself, which there are, are plenty of, are very inspiring. You look amazing. Your sense of style, your dress sense, and and the authenticity, and the fact that you don't give a stuff about what anyone else thinks. You're not copying anyone. It's not fashion. It's Paul Stafford, and and mm. I just love that. So so so, talk to us about style. How would you describe your style? What is style? Well, first of all, I I do copy people. I mean, I I, I do. I I mean, I, I've been copying people all my life. I I I I'm I'm very inspired by by the people who I look up to as as, mm. as style oriented people. Whether it's David Bowie, whether it's Elvis Presley. Uh, I mean, even back in in in, in during the punk period, I couldn't mm. not be you know, inspired by people like John Lydon, you know, recently, you know, people like Kevin Rowland, even even Paul Weller in his day, mm. not so much, not so much clothes wise, but certainly attitude. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think Bowie is the best example because Bowie copied everybody and he just, yeah, like, yeah. he did it. He made it himself. So I feel like that. I feel like, you know, I'll take things from what, from people's, yeah, I, I'm, and I, I'm always the first person to admit it. I'll, I'll say, oh, well, I saw, I seen, um, I mean, I just seen a picture of Harry Styles last night. I'm not inspired by Harry Styles, but I really admire his balls. I really, yeah. you know, I, I when I say I'm not inspired by, I am inspired by him. I'm not going to suddenly start wearing high heels because I think that might be a step too far. But I really respect his, I really respect his 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 uh, his balls for doing it. So yeah. that, that that for many years I was very kind of inspired by that late '50s '60s kind of style of dress and that was always my kind of go-to I loved that kind of look but in in the last 10 years I just felt it was so confined and I think it might have been the advent of Mad Men where everyone started to dress like they were kind of either sort of Soho um kind of boys about town or Madison Avenue um ad executives and I found myself becoming less and less you know orientated towards that and it became a point where I I, I felt that I, I I needed to I need I need to dress up for my own well-being. Mm. I need to dress up for my own sense of who I am. It it makes me it makes me feel not like I'm going to work, but like I'm going to give um, the best of me every day. So uh, I, I don't I, I don't give it that much thought actually about what I'm going to wear. It's not like I have to sort of plan it out. It is it is something that I can do quite quickly, which I've mm. always been able to do. But as I get older, my enjoyment of it is greater. Mm, I, okay. I I enjoy I enjoy the, the 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 kind of the routine the regime of you know getting ready and um and I, and you know yes I don't if people don't like it that's not really anything to do with me and if they do like it I really appreciate it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I I get what you mean when you said you do copy other people, and so today you're you're very much rocking, you know, David Bowie, Thin White Duke, <laughs> would, would, would be my reference. Uh, and there are certainly others where you mentioned Paul Weller, for example, where hmm. um, yeah, there's a bit of Paul Weller going on in there, um, and of course that ties in with the music and the movies and the whole. Yeah. It's it's part of a whole thing, you know. So I I suppose. Yes, you copy other people, but you make it who you are. It's so authentic. And I suppose the reason I'm, you know, I'm sort of dwelling on this is that I think as an industry, it, there's not enough people that do that. There's not enough people like you. I mean, I don't. I, when I stood behind the chair and had a salon, etc., um, I had a, a. There was a different degree of importance to make sure you looked the part. These days, unless I'm standing on a stage, I'm working at home and I've got my jeans on and a sweatshirt, whatever. And it's more about comfort. But when I see someone like yourself, and I get what you mean about Harry Styles as well. When you see someone yeah. who has the courage. Uh, to be their authentic self and couldn't give a stuff about what anyone else thinks. I, I think that's amazing, especially when they do it with polish, because mm. 
you, you can take that either way, that someone rocks up to work looking a slob and couldn't give a stuff about what anyone else thinks. Or you can take it from the perspective of someone who um, looks fantastic and makes an effort and you realise that even though you may not want to dress or look like them, but, that this person understands style. They understand beauty. Yeah. They understand how to make the most of themselves and that that's so important if you're going to stand behind a chair and talk to people. Um, let's let's switch this up a bit. Um, I, I could talk about this forever, but there are other subjects that uh, I know you're equally as passionate about um, that I want to talk to because uh, I know people will be interested in them. Um, I know your wife has an incredible uh, influence to you, a big part of your life in in your business. Uh, Lisa, what, what role does Lisa take in the business these days because you're very much the front man and like a lot of i work with my wife as well uh she very much pulls the strings in the background in so many different areas um but is happy for me to be in the limelight so to speak what's what's lisa's sort of position in the business well it's a recent thing actually because uh lisa up up until maybe the last 10 years was very much my partner on every level very very visually and very physically it was Lisa and I and in in, in about 2010 2011 um, Lisa had decided that she wanted to allow the staff the team members to take on the role of being part of the creative development of the salon and she felt that, that was the right way forward for the future because the plan back then was to maybe expand the business to have more salons and have more creative outlets. So she she started to pull the strings from behind the scenes from a business perspective, um, uh, running the salon, staff administration, pretty much everything. I mean, Lisa was literally, she was the anchor of, of, of the business. Uh, in the last 18 months, which I'll talk about later, but she has decided that she now wants to come back into the creative outlet. Now, Lisa is probably technically the best hairdresser in our salon. She might actually be one of the most unsung heroes in the industry. Anybody who knows Lisa, if you ask any of the major magazine editors and you know people like Jane Lewis or, or maybe Catherine Hancock, they will tell you that Lisa Stafford is probably the most talented hairdresser to come out of Northern Ireland in many years. But she is so so withdrawn from wanting she is void of ego she has no sense of um wanting to be recognized on any level though she is a, a northern irish hairdresser of the year and she is more, most happiest either working in the studio behind the scenes just knocking out great hair or else with her clients mm. she's an amazing woman, very multifunctional, very multidimensional in terms of, of, of her capabilities. But, um, yeah, she's always been putting people before herself. But that's changed. I, I've noticed in the last 18 months that Lisa feels that her contribution to our shows, our shoots, and also to the actual um, uh, uh, creative de- development of our team has become much more uh, visual and the last couple of collections that we've done and also the show that we just did in Salon International, Lisa was, I couldn't have done it without her. I mean, she was just powerfully uh, instrumental and involved in every aspect. I mean, quite often she would have just left me to do the haircuts, whereas this time she was saying, I think this needs to be added to it. I think you could do more with that shape. I think you could push that a little bit further. And then she was introducing great colour palettes, wonderfully thought out techniques and also speaking about it from the perspective of forward um, predictions rather than actually just saying this is just something I do thinking about what the impact that that would have um, from a media perspective giving people great information that was educational how do I put how do I sum up Lisa in in a couple of words Uh, Lisa is the bedrock the heart and soul and she is the very spirit of everything we do at Stafford. I, I, I'm very good at articulating it. I'm quite good at you know, getting on stage and talking about it. But actually, Lisa is literally in the background, you know, sparking up the engine and keeping it running while I'm, you know, trying to navigate our way through the place. So mm. um, she's a phenomenal individual and a very, a very, uh, a, a very intelligent um, well-rounded cultural beacon as well, because 
quite often when I take little tangents and I go down the, 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 the rabbit hole of trying to sort of search for inspiration, she'll very simply come up with something and go, I think you're looking too far. It's right in front of you. Here it is. Mm. And she's brilliant at that. And, I, and, I, and I've been very lucky to have spent most of my life, 40 years with her. So. Mm. Good. Oh, fantastic. Um, what, a, what a wonderful you know, summary of your professional um, and personal relationship. Mm. Um, you've got two daughters as well who are similar age to my daughters, a little bit younger. The, the, yours, I think you said were 19, did you say, and 21? 19, 20? 18 and 20. 18 and 20, okay. So how do they influence you with your, not just your work in terms of your beauty aesthetic, but sort of how you see the world, how you see fashion, how you see young people, you know, how you, you know, you've talked a lot about um, the sort of cultural impact of, of music and fashion and how you grew up. They obviously are growing up in a very different world um, and you're a tight unit, as you were saying. So, so what influence do they have on your beauty aesthetic and sense of style and, and how you run your business and how you see fashion, et cetera? It, really important, actually, because it, it is, it's a window into the future. It's a window into a world that and not only do I think I shouldn't know about, but also I couldn't know about without them. As I said at the very beginning, I'm 53 years of age. I don't want, I'm not, I don't want to be young. I'm not, I'm not part of this generation. That doesn't mean to say I'm not curious about it, but I don't pretend to be down with the kids. I'm definitely not that, you know, I am a 53 year old man. I've had the most amazing life, but my children give me the opportunity to see the world from their perspective. And I wouldn't have had that without them because I wouldn't have naturally have gone out and seek or, 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 or ask that question of any other 18 or 20-year-old. I just wouldn't have done it. I'm, yeah, I wouldn't course. have had that interest. Mm. So they, they, they are very honest with me. They'll tell me, they will say to me, Dad, you know, none of my friends have the haircuts that you do. And, and, <laughs> and, I'm, going, and I'm saying, yeah, I'm not surprised. And they go, but do you think that's interesting? And I said, I said I'm interested in the kids who do want to have these haircuts. Yeah. And they said, well, what about, what about my generation? What are you going to do for them? Well, what? And I said, well, until they start wanting to have haircuts again, I'm not the person for them. Mm. And that is the truth. So they, they give me an insight into, you know, what their generation is saying and doing without me having to dig too deep. And I love that. But they also changed Lisa and I. Lisa and I were, you know, um, uh, up until the early 2000s, before we had kids, we were this kind of rock and roll couple. We were having, you know, we were traveling all over the world. We were working for great companies. We were having brilliant shows, doing great shoots. We had a great salon. At one stage, we had we were employing 50, 60 people. And um, and we thought this was, the, you know, we never thought about having kids. And we were coming back from doing a great show in Malta. And Lisa said, I didn't feel well. She says, I don't feel well. And we, we did, she did a pregnancy test at Heathrow. And that minute, our life changed. <laughs> I, and and I, I knew, I knew that. And also, you know, we knew immediately that this baby was going to be called Joni because our hero was Joni Mitchell. So oh, we knew okay. everything. Yeah. We, we knew everything was going to change. And we embraced that brilliantly. I think we, we you know, very shortly afterwards, I stopped drinking. I, you know, um, there were lots of things that changed. Mm. But I, I think the big thing for us was, it, 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 it started the next stage of our life, which was which I think has been the most exciting period. In that time, we've had the most incredibly difficult periods, a bankruptcy, and now we've had a pandemic. But because of our family and because of the decisions that we made in that early stage, I think we've been able to navigate through those things really well. We've stayed tight. Lisa's mm. been very supportive. Our kids never, ever judged us. They never thought because the life that they had been born into had changed dramatically through um, business situations, financial situations. They never once thought, you know, they, ne they never came to us and said, you know, why can't I have a car like my friends or why can't I go on holiday more often? They just knew that Lisa and I worked so hard that mm. everything that came along was part and parcel of the package. We're a really tight family. Um, mm. And uh, they give me everything. I mean, I, me, my Joni and I last night we went to see a Wes Anderson film. <laughs> she, she's she's looking at me going, 
Dad, what what do you like? what do you like about this? And I said, I said to her, if Wes Anderson, if I was ever going to have a film made about my life, I'd want Wes Anderson to direct to direct it, because mm. my life is half cartoon, half reality. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, you touched on a couple of things there that that I know that you're cool that we speak about. So I don't want anyone thinking that I'm putting you on an awkward situation. Uh, one of them was drink. You said you gave up drinking, um, and the other one was bankruptcy. So, so which which one do you want to deal with first? You know, I suppose I suppose the thing is is that you had an a very high you have a very high profile in the industry and in mm. the in the early 2000s, you were flying extremely high. As you just said, you had 50 or 60 staff. You had a huge, beautiful concept salon, et cetera. And for people who don't aren't aware of it, I mean, it, it doesn't. It, it seems like a long time ago now. But uh, in the early 2000s, the Irish economy was absolutely flying. It was just phenomenal. They used to call it the Celtic Tiger or something, didn't they? Because it was like this runaway economy. And then... What happened globally in 2007 was that the entire economy, you know, just collapsed everywhere. Um, and Ireland in particular was hit really, really hard. And your business was, you know, you were very much caught up in all that because of exposure mm. to, you know, to property and lots of people losing their jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and as you said, you know, the, the, you bankrupted yourself eventually. Talk to us about, about that um, experience, what you went through, what led up to it, and how you came out the other end of it? Uh, well, first of all, as you said, early 2000s, we were in a massive expansion program. We, we had bought some properties, and we had, we, had, we, had, um, we had built a very successful salon base, and we had great uh, contracts with companies like Swarshkoff and Denman and people like that. Um, so we, we were really just doing what anybody was doing in terms of empire building um, but we had this great ethos we'd come back from new york where, 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 we, where we had visited bumble and bumble and i thought let's do that and lisa found an amazing warehouse uh, environment that was right in the middle of what belfast a built an area in belfast called the golden mile it was no longer the golden mile in actual fact even at that stage, it was already starting to fall into decline. But we kind of visualized the fact that Bumble and Bumble had done what they did in the meatpacking district. We thought we could do it in this old area of Belfast. The salon itself probably cost about half a million pounds to put together, which wasn't, which is a lot of money. But actually, at that time, considering what we had done, was relative. Mm. The next stage was to open a second salon. When, when we got the, the, the concept salon up and running, 6,000 square feet, cafe, gallery, bar, education centre, the, the, I mean, the whole lot. Um, the next stage was to open a, a satellite salon in the south of the city where a lot of our clients came from. Now, that cost $1.5 Belfast has a population of 500,000 people. Mm. It would be difficult to make a salon that size or that scale work in London. But Ireland, as you say, was so flying, was so so awash with money that we couldn't see any downside to this because if, 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 if anything failed, at least the property would be worth something. Nobody had any idea how devalued property would become. In fact, when we did bankrupt, that property was sold by the bank to our current landlord for about £250,000. That gives you an idea of how devalued things came. In 2010, it became aware that we were in a very, very difficult situation, not only because um, we had to close the main salon because of um, rent issues and uh, the landlord was hiking up the rent. We had a break, we had a break in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the lease. But the bank had started to put a lot of pressure on us to start repaying very quickly. And it became apparent to me that there was no way around this. I had started to go into negotiation with trying to renegotiate the, the terms and the bank wouldn't listen. And in 2012, we, we had to take the decision to, to bankrupt the business. And I mean, I think probably the most difficult part of it other than the shame of being bankrupt, which was difficult, but it was just the media and, and the public face of it all the fact that it was so humiliating from a media perspective you know 
this golden boy, the golden couple of Northern Irish hairdressing had fallen on their sword. And we mm. were, I mean, we were literally hung out to dry. But as I told you before, I'm pretty much made of Teflon. Mm. And my attitude was, uh, I'm just going to work through this. I'm going to find a way to navigate. Well, the most difficult situation was trying to renegotiate keeping my house because okay. the bank had basically said, we're going to put a sale for sale sign up in your house. We want you out of the house. And I went to the bank and I said to them, look, you know, there's really no need for you to do this. I, I'm, I'm going to continue to work. I'm going to continue to work harder. I'm going to do more clients. I'm going to become more successful. So, you know, by you selling this in, 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 a, in a fire sale, you're not going to get the value of the house and you're going to put a family out and you're going to make a family homeless. And they took about six to nine months, but eventually they came back and they said, OK, we believe in you. And that for me was the turning point. Mm. That for me was the small victory I needed just to, to restart, to kickstart my life. And I made a promise I was going to come back stronger. I was going to do bigger things, better things. I'm not, I, I also became very clear that I wasn't going to be financially led anymore. I was going to do things that I enjoyed doing, things that we loved doing. And I, I think that... We, that was really, for me, the turning point to where we are today, where I only do the things I enjoy. I only do, uh, I, you know, if we open another salon or we open more salons in the future, it will because it's the right thing to do. I, I think the impact it had on Lisa was difficult. She, she felt that we'd been cheated, that we had been, that we had been misled and that, you know, uh, and there was no real reason for the bank to treat us the way they did. But I don't think the bank cherry picked us and say we're going to make we're going to make a, an example of you. I think we were just part of the washout, and yeah. we we had to accept that. It's taken a long time for Lisa to get over. Uh, it, it for me, I, I was kind of over it within a year or two. You know, I I I I thought you know it's time to get on with our lives, um, and the, it was a humbling experience, and and but you know we we. You know, I don't feel like we did any, but we kept everyone's jobs. We kept everybody in work. Um, yes, we, 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 we had debt to the bank and HMRC, which I promised I would never get into debt again. I, I, but, and, and that is the case. But um, I, you know, I didn't, we didn't make any small business or leave any small or, or any individual unpaid. Mm. Uh, we did it with integrity, I think. Um I was honest as I could be, and and I'm honest about it to today. You know, we we got we got carried away with the with 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 the idea that we were doing something exciting and and fundamentally useful and 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 um, and innovative and progressive. But reality of it is, in a population of less than six million people in Ireland, it was too big for the country. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the, the thing is, you you were flying very high, and you make good mm. um, you make good media coverage, good at when it works for you and when it doesn't, and and that's always the challenge. And uh, yeah, it's it's incredible because because you were so successful. That's why you got the, that's the downside of the success, I suppose, isn't it? Is that when it goes wrong? And and I mean, it wasn't just you. I mean, there were hundreds, if not thousands of businesses that, that um, you know, had to go bankrupt during that period of time. But because of your profile, it um, is what, you know, makes it even more painful, I suppose. Is that what, when you talked, mentioned before about the drink issue and you said that's when I gave up drinking or whatever, were the two connected? I mean, because it would so be easy to start drinking, wouldn't it, to, to yeah, sort of it, alleviate some of the pain? I, I come from a long line of very successful alcoholics. You know, it, it's, it's something we're really good at here. Um, and my, my, my father would, would have been a heavy drinker. My mother liked to drink. My, my brother drank, but it, it, was, it would probably admit that he was an alcoholic. Um, I, I knew I was having problems with drink probably in the early 2000s. I, I remember going to do hair shows. And, you know, it's... You know, the night before the show, I'd have a couple of drinks just to sort of calm the nerves. And then, you know, we'd maybe have a drink before we went on stage just to sort of keep it tight. And then you'd come off stage and if it was really successful, you'd have a drink. If it didn't go so well, you'd have a drink. And if it was a bit flat, you'd have a drink. You know, there was just, 
and it, it became less of a thing where I, I would do it to celebrate, whereas I would do it for anything. You know, it didn't matter whether it was birthdays, Christmas, mm. holidays, Mondays or Wednesdays. Mm. It was every night. I'd also started to have little kind of blackouts. You know, I'd started to kind of like forget what I'd done or forget what I'd said. And the, the, in 2009, I think I, I realized I'd come to the point where I was uh, – self-medicating because of the financial situation and of the salon i was escaping that hassle all the time if the bank had rang that day i'd have a bottle of wine if they hadn't rang i knew they were going to ring i'd have a bottle of wine i was starting to stay out more i wasn't coming home i'd go to the pub and meet a couple of people who were very willing and very happy to sit around and listen to all my great stories of excess and success from the past without actually knowing what i was really going through Mm. Um, so I think for me, I woke up on the kitchen floor um, around June 2010. We were in a very difficult situation, and my wife said to me, um, "Get yourself organised. Uh, the kids have to go to school. I want to speak to you when we get home. I'm not going to leave you, but I don't love you anymore." Mm. And I think at that point, the penny dropped. I think it. Uh, I, I stopped drinking around August 2010. And uh, that was the last, well, when I say around, it was exactly August 2010. And I haven't touched a drink since. But it took a long time for me to, the drinking, stop, stopping the drink was, was a challenge, but not impossible. The difficulty was trying to get Lisa to trust me again. That took much longer took a long time because there was always the fear that I might um, I, I might use any excuse to sort of fall off the wagon. And mm. obviously the big thing, when, when the bankruptcy hit the papers in 2012, it, everyone thought that I was just going to lose it. But actually for me, that was the point where I went, I've got through this, I can get through anything. Mm. Um, and there were plenty of opportunities. I'll tell you a very funny story. The week before I was um, declared bankrupt, Denman, who hadn't used me for quite a few years, came back to me and said, listen, Paul, um, <laughs> they said, listen, we need somebody to go and shore up uh, uh, our shows in the States. We, we're, we're, we're a little bit kind of light with people doing demonstration and platform work. Uh, do you think you might be interested in doing a couple of tours out there next year? And I said, listen, guys, um, before we do anything, I just want you to know that I'm probably going to be declared bankrupt very shortly and I'm, I'm going to be out of business. <laughs> and, and the MD or, or the, 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 the advertising director of Denver at the time said, so you'll be pretty cheap then. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought at the time was, that's kind of typical of my life, you know. Um, and, uh, and that was the, that was the lifeline. Mm. That was the lifeline. The, the fact that Denman still wanted me and and when it hit the papers, they were like, right, we've got some shows lined up, Chicago, New York, Long Beach, we want you to do it. So I was very fortunate because I was able to get out of the country and escape from this harrowing shadow and Lisa had to stay here and deal with it. Okay. So, yeah. you know, I mean, hmm. when you th when I think back of it, you know, it was quite a selfish thing. Here was me standing in front of huge audiences in Long Beach who remembered this golden boy of Irish hairdressing and was still kind of interested in seeing if he could still cut it, whereas Lisa was actually having, here having to go to work every day and face the music and, you know, put a brave face on what was a very, very difficult situation. Mm. I, I know we preempted it that we'd talk about that. I didn't realise you were going to talk about it with the honesty and openness that you did, so thank you so much. Um, I always think it's important to talk about stuff like that with the right people at the right time because there are other people that listen to this that are at a different stage of their journey. And if, mm. if you say one thing that gets people to question their situation and how they're going about things, then... Um, I think that's a good thing to do. So, so thanks for that. You never know the impact that that has on on other people that are that are listening. Um, wow. Okay. So uh, we haven't got long to go, but I, I wanted to ask you about COVID and um, you know uh, what impact 
that has had on you and your business because, you know, obviously it's impacted on people all over the world in varying degrees. Um, how's it, you know, uh, changed business for you? I, I think it's changed our business uh, unrecognisably. I think that, you know, we uh, we have had to navigate um, and try to dig our way out of this in a way that we try to find some positives, obviously, because there has to be a future. Um, but also try to try to work out what we've learned from this. I, I, I the first thing I would say is the first six months of lockdown, um, the first period, I found very difficult. I found it really hard. I found, everybody else was thinking this was this kind of the, the great summer holidays. They never thought they would they would get experience from their school days. I I was I was in the thick of one of the most fruitful periods of my life when this happened mm. we had shows lined up we were traveling all around the world the business was flying and uh, nothing could stop us in fact my wife was saying to me in february of 2020 yeah um you know look, are you going to take some holidays this year because you've got and i was like look well let's just let's just go back to moscow let's do the america let's we had a trip to australia that was maybe happening so when when in march 2020 when this happened for me, this was like, no, 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 please, just not now. I can't. But I thought maybe, I thought it might last two months. By the time we got into the big winter lockdown last year, the main thing that I realized that happened was we weren't getting our staff back. I knew they weren't coming back. I knew, I sensed from the Zoom meetings and the conversations that I wasn't getting that response that you need to give you that extra little bit of reassurance. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I think the main thing that I felt that really impacted on me was that when we came back to work, I, 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 I felt that I need to reset this business in a way that keeps the salon going. I'm not going to make the option of, of not having a salon. I want the salon to be, the, you know, the easiest thing for, for Lisa and I at that stage would have been to pull it all down, and just do something very private and small. But I felt very definitely that I want to be a salon owner. I want to be somebody who continues to run salons, to build teams, to be very, um, to be very forward in the salon culture. And even though we had come back with a very depleted team, I felt that we can still build this um, because we had lost 10 staff half our staff had not come back. And people have asked me, what did I think it was? And I think the reality of it was, there was a combination of where people had this epiphany during lockdown where they thought, you know, I don't know if I want to do 40 clients a week. I don't know if I want to work five days a week. I don't know if I want to, you know, take my holidays when, when you know, whenever it suits the business I work in. I want to, I want to have this very, very individual, private, life that I'm in control of. I completely understand that. I completely get it. And I think it took the pandemic for people to see that. But I think what happened was there was a lack of loyalty and respect for, 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 the, for the salons and the businesses that had supported them during this, during this period. But I had also made the decision during lockdown to recruit. When anybody came to me and asked me about the opportunity to have a career, you know, I, I was giving them the opportunity that they might want. So we, we'd taken on four or five people during lockdown while, while other people were trying to um, offload. So we were we, we, we had continued the kind of sense that we're a recruiting salon, we're a mentoring salon. Um, downturn in business, weirdly, for losing so many staff, we've had a downturn in business of maybe 30%. But with the, with, with the aspect of, you know, a, a lower wage bill, we're managing it quite well. Um, and for me, the big thing that's happened is that Lisa and I feel much stronger as a, as a unit, as a team. And I think over the next couple of years, Lisa, Lisa will become much more visual in, as the front person in the business, um, as a creative person, as, as, as a voice in the industry. And I believe that we need to preserve the culture of salons Salons are where people are educated. They're where people are trained. It's where they learn how to communicate. It's where they learn how to actually uh, explore the whole 
world of hairdressing from the perspective of not just as somewhere where you process people um, from a from a client perspective, but where you learn how to work as a team, where you, where you, where you become educated. It, it makes you culturally aware. Its place in, in the high street is vital, not just as a place where you go and have a haircut, but as somewhere where you go to meet people, where you where you become inspired and you can explore every aspect of, of, of the industry. I mean, most session stylists, uh, freelancers, technicians, educators have worked in salons. What would the world be without salons? Where would mm. they get that education? They're not going to get it in colleges. They're not going to get it in schools. You know, you can pay you can pay to go to Sassoon's tomorrow and you can end, you could leave being an amazing hair cutter. But you actually need to be in, you need to work in salons to explore how to use those implements, those elements, in order to sort of show the true worth of your skills and who you are. And for me, my mission is to keep salons running and also to bring back the craft of of of, of the haircut. Actually get people to understand what a haircut means. Mm-hmm. Everyone's got long hair and balayage hair and blowout hair. People have forgotten that. For me, going back to what we talked about at the beginning, for me, the haircut was your identity. It was your, it was who you were. A haircut said so much about you. It said so much about what you're into, who you felt you were, what you what what you wanted to, who you inspired, who you, who inspired you, and what you aspired to. And I think a lot of this stuff came to me during lockdown, and I feel, for me, the outlook's very positive. Mm. Well, I mean, I, I could sit here listening to you forever. Um, I think you've got a great insight into the industry. You've been through an awful lot. You've come out the other end of it, you know, uh, wiser for it, which is is fantastic to hear. I agree with you. I was going to finish up by asking you about the different business models that are emerging, and you've covered off on that, um, and and what you thought the future is, and, and you've sort of covered off on that as well. Um I mean, I think, Anthony, one of the things that I would like to say myself, just in case, you know, for me, the industry is 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 vital. It's important that the industry is considered to be a craft. It's considered to be something that people look at and aspire to be part of, not just purely from a solo perspective. It should never be something that people think, you know, that they, they, they should only go it alone. If you want to be a freelancer, you want to be a session stylist, you want to do something individual, that is absolutely your entitlement. It's your right. But we shouldn't rule out salons and the salon environment and being part of that great salon group like Sassoon's or Rush or Hob simply because uh, you might feel like you're having to be part of a regime. Hairdressing salons are always been the place where individuals are born. Every person who works in a hairdressing salon is an individual. And we, that's, why we, that's why we are the great Bernardos of industry, because we've never been judgmental. We've never, ever, you know, looked down on someone because they want to be a hairdresser. We, we are absolutely hell-bent on inclusion. This is the industry where anybody's welcome. And they're welcome because salons are hotbeds of equality. They are the very, the very basis of what it's like to take people from anywhere in the world, from any background, from any sexual orientation, race, whatever, religion, and make them feel like that they are vital and useful to our industry. The reason that I got into hairdressing was to escape from my life, to escape from, you know, the Catholic Protestant war that was going on. Hairdressing for me was, it was the Disneyland of industry. It gave me the opportunity to be around the type of people that I loved, that I respected, that I admired. And when I worked in a salon, for me, I never asked anybody who they were, where they came from, what they were, what they were into. It wasn't that important. It's Mm. even less important now. We shouldn't think salons are a thing of the past. They have to be the future. And for me and Lisa, we will n- never not have a hairdressing salon where we're surrounded by incredible people who we love working with, who we want to help in the, in, in, in the first steps of their career. And we want to see them flourish, be successful and move on to the next stage of their life, wherever that may be. Well, Paul, I, I, I could listen to you for ages. Um, I think you've got a lot of wisdom. You've had a lot of experience and uh, you've come out the other end of some really challenging times. 
uh, still with this incredible optimism and sense of style and class about what you do. So, uh, so thank you. It's uh, it's been fantastic having this time to to talk with you. Uh, where, whereabouts can people connect with you on Instagram or other social channels? Seeing as how I've said they've got to have a look at the most stylish man in hairdressing, we need to make sure they go to the right <laughs> well, place. Weirdly enough, I I I, I we, our main hairdressing Instagram page, which is which we love um, curating, and is is at We Are Stafford Hair. That's the one that you know. If you're interested in the hairdressing stuff. The style and the music kind of thing. I've I've now decided to separate that. That's on a new, well, not a new Instagram page, but it's it's my own personal Paul Stafford Instagram, and that's where I kind of talk a little bit about my influences, where I get my ideas, where I buy clothes, where I buy records. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and the reason I separated it was because I wanted I wanted to have a little bit more privacy with that. Uh, I didn't want people to think, you know, that I, I didn't want to sort of, you know. A block the hairdressing side of things with pictures of me wearing strange hats. I mm. wanted it to be quite two <laughs> succinctly different yeah. things. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the people follow both, and we love them. Um, and of Good. course, you know, you can get us on face, Facebook, and Twitter and stuff like that. Right. Okay. I'll, I'll put those links for your Instagram and Facebook in, into the show notes for this. Uh, if you listen to this podcast with Paul Stafford and you've enjoyed it, then do me a favor, take a screenshot on your phone, uh, share it to your Instagram stories, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. So to wrap up, Paul Stafford, thank you so much for being on this week's episode of the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. Thank you, Anthony. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.